attention. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, first pod of 2020. This is a this is one of our favorites, Matt, our top 10 lists uh, for 2019. It's my favorite podcast of the year. It's January. Oh. It's all downhill from here. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, speaking of January, usually it's the joke, obviously, that uh, January is where all the shit films go to die, but uh, pretty excited about some of the movies this January. Oh, yeah? You looking forward to Underwater? No. Uh, I'm <laughs> looking forward to The Gentleman. Yes. Uh, and Bad Boys. Always. And Bad Boys for Life. So, the, I mean, that's two right there. Isn't it strange? It's a strange state of affairs that I find myself very, very disappointed that Michael Bay is not directing the third Bad Boys film. I know. He's so busy doing goddamn Six Underground for Netflix, he's not finishing off the epic trilogy that he started. I know, and Six Underground, I I turned that movie off. We turned it off like 15 minutes in. I couldn't handle it. I hated it. Oh, really? Did you like it? I did. I I haven't. It it was one of those, I mean, I've just been cramming for the last month in preparation for this podcast, and Six Underground was on my list of things to get around to. Not that I expected it to end up... (laughs) On my top 10 list, but I was still like, yeah, you know, that's something I'll put on when all the relatives have gone to sleep and I've got a little, you know, wine buzz going on the 27th of December or whatever. <laughs> and I was so busy watching all the highfalutin stuff that I never got around to Six Underground. Well, you know, we turned it off pretty soon after uh, at the very beginning of the film. Dave Franco is uh, is driving the getaway car through Florence and he uh, does a slow motion turn wherein he stares at a beautiful Italian woman and they lock eyes and then he turns to the camera and goes, man, I love Italy. Um, <laughs> You're that's like, when I I'm knew. out. I gotta go. <laughs> and they also do, like, they, they're in Florence and then they he turns a corner and he's in the, the plaza in Siena just for, you know, it's an hour away, just for... 30 seconds and then they're back in Florence. I, I didn't like that. Wow, yeah. Either. Real, so, real you know, uh, Italy head over here. No no verisimilitude. Italy for, nerd. Uh, six underground. Yeah, big <laughs> Italy nerd, this guy. Um, anyway, that's enough Michael Bay talk. Matt, before we get in our top 10, do you want to give your list of shame, uh, movies you didn't get around to this year? Yes, list of shame in alphabetical order. Her Smell, Alex Ross Perry's film with Elizabeth Moss, which... A lot of people whom I respect uh, just absolutely adored, and there was a brief awards campaign for Elizabeth Moss, uh, saying that it was you know one of the most important performances of the career uh, of the career of the year. Yeah, it was just it was one of those films that I heard was extraordinarily unpleasant, but still sort of required viewing, and I just never pulled the trigger on it. Les Misérables, the French film that France has submitted as their um, Oscar contender this year which uh, not the most critically acclaimed film to come out of Cannes, but apparently quite the debut feature. 
uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night, which I believe is a uh, is a Chinese film, which allegedly the first like hour of the movie takes place all in one shot, something like that. First 45 minutes. Uh, apparently it's quite a technical marvel, sort of in the same vein as 1917. Manos, which I think is a Colombian film. Extraordinary trailer, apparently very dark, very violent, very exciting. My brother-in-law kept insisting that I needed to get to it, and I just never got around to it. I feel bad about that. Um, one Child Nation I just haven't had any opportunity to see yet. I don't think it's even come out in American theaters yet. One of the great documentaries of the year. Uh, Peanut Butter Falcon. Everybody who's seen that movie appears to have loved it. And perhaps you have, so maybe I won't spoil it in case it comes I out have later. Not in this se- I have not seen it. Okay. Not seen it. I mean, it, it was just one of those films where the subject matter, I was kind of just like, yeah, all right, can't really get excited about this movie, but everybody's crazy about it. And so I got to sneak... Well, apparently it's a real crowd pleaser. Absolutely, yeah. surprising. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, I, I got a sneaky suspicion that I might see it at some point and be like, God damn it, it would have ended up on my list. I wish I would have made the effort. Um, the report, Scott Z. Burns' film, you know, the one of four films that Adam Driver made this year, um, which I hear is a little bit like homework. So I think that's kind of why I avoided it. And once it became clear that it wasn't going to be a big awards contender, I think it it fell really low on my priority list. Um, the souvenir, Joanna Hogg's movie, uh, is literally sitting on the desktop of my computer right now. But I just, it was either that or Mission Impossible Three last night, and uh, <laughs> my friend Megan just really wanted to watch Mission Impossible Three, so I had to, you know. Had to be yeah, a good host. That's the right move. I couldn't force a Johanna Hogg movie on her on a Saturday night. Transit, which is a film I know very little about, but it's the same filmmaker who made Phoenix a couple years ago, which was also you know critically beloved. And I hear Transit is is quite incredible. And then uh, Wild Rose, the film about the Brit who wants to be a country music singer, right? Uh, Jesse Buckley, I think her name is. Yeah, who's getting a ton of love? Exactly. I hear it's quite wonderful. I hear it's it's again a crowd pleaser, a great film to like, you know, watch with your family over the holidays, which I intended to do and just didn't get around to. And also, uh the song in it written by Mary Steenburgen. Oh. So there's a halfway decent chance that uh tomorrow when the Oscar nominations land that Mary Steenburgen might be in there as a songwriter. That would be incredible. I didn't even know she could write a song. <laughs> Did I? Maybe she didn't either until this opportunity came along. Anyway, those are the, those are the ones that I presumed might sneak onto my top 10 list. I had been meaning to get to all of them and didn't. So I am ashamed. How about yourself? You got any, got any shameful lists? So uh, I have all of the ones you named except for I have seen The Souvenir and I have seen The Report. Okay. One of those will be on my list. Besides that, Atlantics on uh, not seeing that, that that good chance of being a foreign film nominee tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I never saw Rocketman or Ford vs. Ferrari. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I know. Those are just two big ones that that slipped through. Just too populist Um, for you. I get it. Too mainstream. Pretty much. Uh, (laughs) I haven't watched American Factory yet and i haven't watched uh the farewell yet i keep meaning to get to it um but the big one just because it opened uh just a day and a half ago in seattle i uh, have not seen 1917 which is really unfortunate and screw the limited release but that's just a reality of my list i you know everyone's giving it love i'm curious to see if it makes your list and where it's uh, on the list if it does. Sounds good. Um, I'm really glad we got this off our chest. I'm feeling much better about everything now. Yeah, it feels good to be honest with the world. Right. You know? There's nothing wrong with not seeing every movie. You know, we have lives, Matt. We have to make money. So it's, you know, it's not our fault. 
can't see everything. No, you can't see everything. And I also, um, my my numbers are really down for 2019. I only made it to, I only watched 300 movies last year and I did 365 in 2018. I only made it to 70 films in the theater last year, whereas I made it to 99 in 2018. For an, a number of reasons, you know, relocating back to the West Coast, finding a place to live, finding a job, spending a lot of time traveling, uh, spending a lot of time uh, cleaning up my financial matters, uh, just not getting to the theater nearly as much. For a number of reasons, um, my numbers were down for, for 2019. And there's also a chance that this might be the first year in a few years that I just, that I can't be the Oscar completist that I usually am because we have a really truncated uh, award season schedule this year, which is great. I'm excited yeah, that the Oscars are it. so early, but it's going to mean, I mean, there's a pretty decent chance that I don't get to, you know, missing Link before February 9th, for example. <laughs> Whereas ordinarily there. I would have you know, made sure to have seen Boss Baby in the past, right? You have about a month. It's January. You can do it. I believe in you. All right. We'll see. I'll see what I can do. This, I'll do the shorts at least. I always do the shorts. Okay. I'll go for it if you go for it. I'll okay. make a push this month. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Okay. Teamwork. Good deal. All right. Shall we get to the list, Matt? Let's do it. I'll start. Because uh, I think this might be a punt. Uh, uh, if one of us has a movie we uh, uh, have listed later on or, or more to the top of their list, we're going to punt it and then talk about it together later on, right? Sounds good. Yep, redundancy. Uh, number 10, I have Uncut Gems. Definitely a punt. Very surprised that's so low on your list. Well, we can get we can talk about it when we get there, but uh, I think that movie might have been just a little overhyped to okay, me okay. <laughs> for weeks on end. I think the last time I talked to you about a month ago, um, I, I was expressing to you before our Magnolia podcast that Uncut Gems might not just be your favorite film of 2019. It might be your favorite film ever. So in that regard, I, I clearly sold it a little bit heavy. <laughs> I have multiple people say similar things to me, so... <laughs> Um, my number 10 is a film that you did not put on your list of shame, but I don't think you've seen it because I feel like we would have at least talked, we would have at least talked about it in passing by now, and that is Edward Norton's Motherless Brooklyn. Yeah, that is on my list of shame. I okay. have not seen it. Okay. Nobody has. <laughs> I think yeah. I, I'm one of, I'm one of, you know, 13 people who saw that movie in the theater. Motherless Brooklyn was probably my most anticipated film of 2019. More so than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, more so than Avengers, more so than Star Wars. I am really in the pocket for a fucking neo-noir directed by, written and directed and starring Edward Norton. Like, that is right up my alley. And I was so goddamn excited for this movie. I, you know, bought up a bunch of um, contenders for my fantasy film league. And I was like, here we go. This is it. The... The comeback narrative for Norton is complete. This is when he's going to officially come back. He's going to win all the Oscars. He's finally going to win his best actor thing. They're going to give him a standing ovation. And the prodigal son, you know, the second coming of of Marlon Brando is finally going to make his masterpiece. And it came out at the fall festivals and everybody shrugged and said, it's all right. And so by the time I finally got around to seeing it, I was very depressed. And I was like, God damn it. I was so excited for this comeback narrative. This is this was all going to work out exactly the way I wanted it to for my guy, Norton. I mean, we talked about it on, on the Fight Club episode, how important this guy is to me, how formative he is for me. So by the time I got to Motherless Brooklyn at the Alamo Drafthouse in L.A., and there was two of us in the theater, I was just like, all right, homework, let's get this over with. And I absolutely fucking loved it. It's not the masterpiece I wanted, but it's actually so much more than that. It's kind of a, 
it's it's kind of a beautiful little film that will someday find its audience. I mean, it was a huge flop. Nobody cared. But someday people will come around and discover this movie and realize that it is in its own way, along with something like L.A. Confidential, kind of the heir apparent to Chinatown. You know, it is the New York Chinatown, which I know is is a big compliment to give. <laughs> high something. Praise. It is. But it's it's just a beautiful, beautiful film. It's so smart and so heartfelt, just evocative. I mean, it's just a wonderful, wonderful noir. And it, and he weaves this really twisty but really satisfying mystery. And the Tourette stuff never feels hokey. It never feels gimmicky. It never feels like an actor, you know, just trying to be performative. It feels very, like, sort of organically tied into uh, the nature of the story he's trying to tell. And it's just a great New York movie. It, it's simultaneously a love letter to New York and also an indictment about what happened to New York, you know, in the mid 20th okay. century. Alec Baldwin plays a great villain. I think his name is Moses Randolph, which is maybe a little bit too close to the fact that he's playing a character who's supposed to be Robert Moses, <laughs> you know, who's the guy who, quote unquote, ruined New York in the 50s. And, you know, a lot of it is, takes place in and around my old neighborhood where I used to live in Harlem when I was going to Columbia. And so I just I loved seeing that part of New York explored that way. It's just made with an abundance of care and affection for the characters and a clear affection for the book, the book, the source material, New York, obviously. Uh, it has a wonderful score from Daniel Pemberton. It features an original song by Tom York, which um, Edward Norton commissioned personally. And I, I just think it's fantastic. I just can't say enough good things about it. And it's one of those tiny little films. You know, it's one of those... Uh, quote-unquote failures of 2019 that I can't wait to introduce people to and try and turn people around on because I think it's really an incredible piece of work. Everything I've heard and read about it seems like a, it, it came off like it might be a bit of a slog, Yeah, this movie, but uh, I don't know. I mean, like I, I'm down for You don't get many noirs these days, so if it is as expertly crafted as you say, I'll give it a look. Considering the incredible failure that it was, this is why we don't get many of these because this is not a yeah. popular <laughs> this is not a popular medium, obvious or not a popular genre anymore, unfortunately. But uh, but goddamn, I just really responded to it. And you know, Norton, Bruce Willis, Baldwin, Willem Dafoe, Bobby Cannavale. It's just you know, it's it's Norton reaching out and asking for all these favors from all the people that he loves and respects and has worked with over the years. And it just it really feels like a, a reunion of sorts. And I'm just so so proud of Norton for what he pulled off with this. Isn't his stutter a little annoying? Or is his stutter or is it Tourette's? What is it's it? Tourette's. It's it's Tourette's. Okay. And on paper, it's just like, all right, fucking Norton, you need a you need a tick. You like you're really. But yeah, it's yeah. I mean that's it's in the book. It's all there. And like I said, it's like completely tied into his he has Tourette's so obviously he's got all this stuttery stuff and he's got all these ticks and everything but as a result he also has kind of like this savant quality he has like a, a photographic memory which helps him to be this really effective gumshoe my number nine is a movie you haven't seen it's called The Report everything I'd read sounded like homework um, and I was actually coming into the year much more looking forward to The Laundromat, which I also watched, which is a absolute disaster. Have you seen Laundromat? Terrible movie. Just saw so, it. Saw in the just theater. So hated it. Fucking bad. Um, I have no <laughs> Absolutely idea what anyone was it. thinking with him. God. Yeah. Yeah. The ire I felt for that movie was so strong. It's hard to. It's that and Joker, my most two most hated movies this year. The Report. Uh, it's a pretty important movie. You know, it's a really uh, sort of despicable moment event in uh, uh u.s history this whole you know the torture stuff and it's it's a good lesson on on what we did how we did it how it went through the cracks sort of the banality of evil in that way and then i also love a good 
procedural, right? Um, th- that goes through uh, just Adam Driver's five, seven year long mission to bring the info to light. And Adam Driver, one man show here. I mean, Net Benning is, is, is pretty good as Dianne Feinstein, but Adam Driver just caps off his year. He is so fucking good in this. I've been urging everyone I talk to to see this movie. It's important. It's it's really well done. And it's I, I could see a million of these types of movies. I love the investigative stuff. So um, really good movie. Uh, and that's it. Like I, I'm kind of upset it, it got overshadowed. Like I, This feels like it should be in an awards type movie. It's, it's in that zero dark 30 kind of mold except for the action shit. But... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this kind of fell through the cracks and uh, everyone should go watch it on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I will get to it because as much as I dislike the laundromat, I do have a lot of respect for Scott Burns. And, you know, the fact that the the broccolis picked him up to uh, to polish the No Time to Die script, I think, says a lot. Yeah, the laundromat, talented people made it and they just made, uh, they went for something and it absolutely didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Soderbergh committed to something that was the wrong choice, but, you know, he's earned the right to be able to make the wrong choice on occasion because he's yeah. done, he's made so many right choices in the past that it would have seemed like, you know, on paper, the, the, the thing, you know, like just Magic Mike in general, like, oh, this is never going to work. And then that became like one of the most successful films of his career. He's earned the right to whiff like that, but, oh, I found that movie so frustrating. It's 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 like all the, the worst tendencies of like... Uh, Adam McKay doing yeah. Big Short and Vice, but like taken to the most annoying umpteenth degree. Uh, yeah. Do you want to just skip this whole list thing and just talk for an hour about how much we hate the laundromat? <laughs> yeah, I could do that. That's <laughs> audible. Uh, my number nine is another film, which I think would have been on your list of shame, except I'm sure you probably like actively avoided it. So, yeah. and that is okay. uh, Midsummer. Yeah, I did actively avoid it. Yeah, yeah. No, I gotcha. I mean, this is not for everyone. And I know that Ari Aster's stuff, even though he's only made two films, can be pretty alienating for a lot of people. And, you know, I've been on the record many times, you know, and saying that horror is just not my thing. But Ari Aster has kind of brought me around to realize how effective horror can be when it's used as a catalyst, when it's used as a microscope into something bigger that he wants to explore. Hereditary, obviously using the genre to be able to explore the idea of grief or, uh, you know, familial melodrama being basically haunted or poisoned by the um, by the things that are genetically uh, predisposed to us by our parents, like the, the things we can't escape. The, the, the one thing we can't escape in this life is what is given to us genetically by our parents. And that's absolutely terrifying to consider, <laughs> like all the worst parts of ourselves can't be escaped because they're in our blood. And then this is a movie about uh, like wrapping your brain around a toxic relationship and realizing that maybe the only way you can escape something like that is just just fucking burn it all down. You know, like maybe it could be cathartic to just completely not to give away the ending, but just to fucking light it on fire, literally and figuratively. And I just found that concept to be incredibly sophisticated. And um, to me, this is also just kind of the coming out year for Florence Pugh who I think just might be one of the most exciting actresses in her age group. And this uh, movie yeah. is just a love letter to her and a showcase for her talents. And God bless Ari Aster for catching her at the perfect time and the perfect age and right before she turns into a major movie star later this year with Black Widow. And uh, just sort of putting this film on her shoulders and saying, I'm going to need you to go to some crazy dark places and I'm going to need you to cry and to scream. And if, if Jamie Lee Curtis was the scream queen, then Florence Pugh is the ugly cry queen. 
Like she, <laughs> she is such an unbelievably beautiful woman, but man, can she ugly cry. It's pretty incredible what she does in this film. And Jack Rayner commits to being an absolute dirtbag, and it's kind of incorrigible to watch him just completely commit to something like that. And Will Poulter as the sort of like horn dog buddy who you know is going to be one of the first to go. And just the idea of a, a daylight horror film where everything takes place in the bright, bright daylight, and yet you're looking at some of the most horrific images that will ever be seared into your brain. I just oh, think God. this Ari Aster is just <laughs> such an incredible talent. Like... There's things I will never be able to unsee, but I couldn't look away. What's his name? Bobby Krillick's just haunting score. That's It's probably my most replayed soundtrack album of 2019, for sure. Oh, God. Just, just get in that mood, huh? It's I, it's phenomenal. I've hovered over Midsummer on uh, streaming so many times just thinking, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> but then I think back to my uh, hereditary experience. <laughs> Which you didn't I even finish, so- right? No, I, I didn't even get to like the bad parts, but I, I, I was so unsettled by the first 25 minutes that I knew I couldn't do it. So uh, I guess I'm just a big old wuss. Maybe this new decade, I'll, I'll get in there. I think that Midsummer is superior to Hereditary, and part of that's just because it's more fun than Hereditary, which I know is a strange okay. word to use, but I do think it's more accessible. It's more fun. It's much funnier. Yeah, and ultimately, it's it's a breakup movie as opposed to a movie about, you know, a family ripping itself apart. So in that regard, maybe it's a little bit more pleasant, but still pretty fucked up. And it's the rare, you know, psychedelic film that legitimately, like, makes you feel high by the end of it. Yeah. Like, it's a pretty cool. impressive accomplishment. All right, nice. Um, my number eight is Knives Out. Ooh, yeah. This is not on your list, man. That is not a punt. Sometimes you just want to have a fucking great time in the movies, man. And that is what this film is. Uh, just extremely tightly plotted. Uh, Daniel Craig eats up the scenery. The whole cast is fucking incredible. Um, I want more murder mysteries. I want more fun murder mysteries. I want more mid-budget movies. You're gonna get. You're gonna get one. We're gonna. We're getting a sequel, right? I know. I can't freaking wait. It's I, I love it. I, I kind of hope Anna de Armas is his like assistant going forward, um, <laughs> which would make me happy just because she is. Uh, you She's know, didn't even star. know that she was going to be the lead in this movie, basically. Um, and she is terrific. And I'm, you know, I hope maybe she gets a little Oscar love tomorrow. It's not going to happen, but you can feel Ryan Johnson just like. Uh, exhaling after his Star Wars experience with this movie, right? Yeah. I'm proud of him. I'm happy he got this out there and did it. And uh, I want, uh, you know, 30 years of uh, of Daniel Clegg, Ryan Johnson, uh, murder mysteries. Yeah, this movie just makes me so happy. You know, like, it, it's, it's a movie that's clearly so intent on celebrating the idea of decency. You know, like, the Ana de Armas character is so decent And when Daniel Craig makes a revelation about her and the way she does her job in in the final, you know, in the in the final explanation scene. And when he like looks her in the eye and says, this is the reason that you're such a good. I was just like, God damn it. We never get to we never get to see people just like celebrating other characters for their level of decency like that. It's so funny. A movie that revolves around a murder and around greed and all this stuff ends up just being a celebration of decency and humanity, which is, I think, a really yeah. fucking important thing right now. <laughs> you know, Brad Pitt said it in his very adorable Golden Globe speech last week. He's like, if you can be just nice to one person tomorrow, like that's a start, right? <laughs> I I love this movie, and I think that um, perhaps it won't make the waves tomorrow morning that we'd like, simply based on the fact that I guess it's just a little too small or light or comedic or something. But it's too bad, because it probably should be. It should be one of the ten, 
and it, maybe Johnson will at least get his um, his token screenplay nomination, right? Yeah, that's what I'm guessing is going to happen. Um, it, it would be cool if it was one of the ten, but uh, I'm uh, yeah, I'm not optimistic. Plus, it's crazy to think that like Ryan Johnson in this whole crazy Star Wars conversation we've been having over the last month, Ryan Johnson is the one who comes out of this thing smelling like a rose, right? Because know, because insane. Knives Out has been this huge unexpected hit. And all people have been saying for the last month is, fuck J.J. Abrams. And we didn't realize what we had with Ryan Johnson, which is not necessarily a sentiment I agree with. But it just like the fact that he's been kind of quiet and hasn't really spouted off and hasn't said, told you guys or whatever. Like, it's been pretty cool to see him just take the high road and have this big, beloved hit that everybody agrees on while J.J.'s taking fucking shrapnel on the other side of the fence, right? Well, we haven't talked about Star Wars yet, man. (sighs) Something tells me that we won't. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Let's do a quick two-second review. It's terrible. It's bad. I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy it. I've seen it twice now, and I've actually quite enjoyed it both times, but but no, it's it's bad. It's a mess. Okay. It's a big old mess. Um, Number number eight on my list is uh, American Factory. Wonderful documentary, uh, Netflix documentary by Steve Bognar and Julia Reichart. I believe in part produced by the Obamas because the Obamas have so. a it's Netflix one of their deal. Netflix things, yeah. Uh, just a fantastic documentary. I, I, I wish I would have gotten to more documentaries this year. I wish I could put more on this list, but I haven't seen The Cave. I haven't seen Forsama. I haven't seen One Child Nation yet. This one I just really responded to. The, the film festival that I worked for last summer uh, screened this, and that's sort of where it came onto my radar and it really looked like homework on paper. I was just like, what? I'm going to have to be in this fucking automotive factory in Ohio and there's going to be this culture clash stuff and like, oh, this is going to be a slog. And I watched it at work because I had to QC it for our screening and I was just enraptured. Like I just was totally dialed in from the word go and I just absolutely loved it. And it's a really interesting bird's eye view very impartial look at this crazy culture clash happening at this factory where this this entire town is basically going under because this huge factory was shut down and then this Chinese company swoops in, takes over, and then brings a bunch of their people in and then wants to sort of impose their corporate culture into this. And it's about watching all these new Chinese employees figure out how to work with the Americans. It's about the, you know, the Americans wanting to unionize and the Chinese owners not wanting to allow the union to happen. And then uh, some of the employees going over to China and drinking the Kool-Aid of this company, of this Chinese company. And there's this incredible scene where one of these salt-of-the-earth Midwest white dudes uh, goes to China, sort of experiences another culture for the first time, and he just completely breaks down on camera and just has this really emotional, like, kind of cathartic moment where he's like, oh, my God, like, we're all one world. We're, we're all together. And he's a little drunk. <laughs> he's, he's at, like, a, it's like at a banquet or whatever. And he, you can tell yeah. he's a little bit drunk, but just to watch this guy just sob and be like, I can't even believe it. There's so much more world out there. There's other cultures. We're all human. It's just, a, it's a really moving, interesting moment where you realize, like, yeah, this is the world, man. Like, we all need to open our minds, man, open our eyes, embrace <sighs> embrace other cultures. And, and it also has one of the year's great villains. The guy who is the owner of this Chinese company is an incredible villain. But one of the great things about him is that he clearly doesn't consider himself a villain. And that's why he allows so much access. Like he allows these these cameras to follow him around everywhere. And he comes across pretty bad. I mean, I'm sure he watches the movie and thinks that he's the hero. <laughs> 
of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the great things about it. it it's a, it's just a wonderful film. Cool. Yeah, it's easy to freaking watch. It's just on Netflix there. I, and I'm upset I haven't gotten to it yet. All right, my number seven is a little movie that technically came out in 2018 at a couple film festivals, but really 2019 in America. That is High Life. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you included i didn't but i respect it and i can't wait to hear you talk about it well it is i love space movies i basically only want space movies in my life and i technically have two space movies on my list this is the first one never quite seen a space movie like this it is extremely weird there's a lot of body horror in in this movie a lot of extreme gore the cast is Juliette Binoche steals this movie she has one of the most outrageous scenes you'll ever see in any movie <laughs> mm-hmm. let alone a space movie this is a real this is a real horny movie this movie this movie is horny as hell from uh, you know the 73 year old French lady. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. Great year for Pattinson all around. He's having a really good time. It's it, Andre 3000 as well, Mia Goth. I love these meditations in space. A lot of confronting your own, uh, you know, frailty as the as humans, human race. And uh, the story is crazy interesting. It does feel like something that maybe could happen in the near future. I, I love a good space movie. This is pretty psychedelic and weird and uh, just a lot of fun. And I don't really want to spoil anything more for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm smart enough for this movie. I really liked it. I saw it at the New York Film Festival back in uh, September of 2018. Oh, you uh, did? Okay, yeah, cool. and I was really, and, and Claire Denis was there. It was just an overwhelming experience, and it was just one of those, like, I don't really know what I just saw, but I do know that I'm impressed. And I'm not sure what it all means, but maybe that's not important. It's more about how it makes you feel, man. It's a vibe. It's a, it's a total vibe of a movie. But um, I agree. And I could honestly, not that I would want this, but I could see an American remake of this at some point, right? Like the the idea of, uh, I mean, it's, it is, it's, it's in English. It's Claire Denis' first film in English. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, if you were going to Americanize it, I'm sure they would probably just tamp down the uh, the sexuality of it all, which would be a mistake. Yeah, I mean, space movies, you know, by nature are pretty expensive, right? They have to have pretty high budgets. This, this is this is one of your lower budget space movies, but it, it like it's hard to have a bigger budget to make a space movie and make it this weird. You almost never see something like this. I mean, Solaris, Sunshine. Yeah, this is this is not like a crowd pleaser, and it's certainly very weird and off putting in a lot of ways. But if you like that kind of stuff in space, like I do, then absolutely check this out. Yeah, it really feels like a sexy silent running. That's the one that I found that the you know that Bruce <laughs> sure. Bruce Dern sci-fi movie where he's basically just gardening in space for two hours. Yeah, uh, to me this felt like a sexy version of that, which <laughs> I'm all for. My number seven is a little movie called Waves. I'm familiar with Waves. Trey Edward Schultz's third feature, I believe. He's a guy who I'm not super familiar with, hadn't seen either of his first two films, didn't really have this film on my radar until maybe the Toronto Film Festival-ish, where it kind of made some, pardon me, some waves. Kind of felt like, I was just sort of gauging it, like, am I going to need to see this movie? Is this going to be a thing? Is this going to be a contender? And then right about the time that people started gushing about it coming out of Toronto, it ran into this big, huge backlash which surprised me. And it seemed like there was just as many people who hated it as loved it. Yeah, it got crazy hype, and then it got smacked down immediately. It's bizarre. Yeah, like a wave crashing against a, a, oh, a cliffside or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
stop it, stop it. So yeah, by the time I went to go see it, I was super curious about how this was all going to work out. I think I'd seen a trailer, but I hadn't, I really didn't know much about it. I didn't really know what it was about. I knew Sterling K. Brown was in it. I knew it had to do with the high school experience, but that was about it. About halfway through the film, I was like, should I leave? Should I get up? Should I? This is pretty unpleasant. Like, should I just go? Like, I'm not sure if I want to watch the rest of this. Like, I won't give anything away, but right around the halfway point of the movie, something so horrible and dramatic and just upsetting happens that it's. I was just kind of like, I'm not enjoying this. Maybe I'm just going to go. And then the movie takes a 180 degree turn and it becomes a completely different film. It's a diptych of a movie. And basically the first half is about one character and the second half is about another character. Obviously those two halves inform each other and they need each other. And the second half of the movie doesn't work if the first half doesn't put you through what it puts you through. But by the time I got to the second half, I was just absolutely swept up and blown away. Like the second half is so incredible and it... It really is a star-making moment for an actress named Taylor Russell. And you just look at that, you're like, that's that's the breakout star of 2019. What an incredible actress. Somebody I knew nothing about. Somebody I'd never seen before. And she just dominates the screen. It's all about her. She's in pretty much every single shot of the second half of the movie. And she has this incredible romance with Lucas Hedges. And the movie just becomes ecstatic and euphoric. And it actually has a lot of similarities with the show Euphoria, okay. the HBO show, which I yeah. which I watched this year. And I, I have my issues with, I kind of get what that show's trying at. And I don't think it really accomplishes it. But I respect what it's trying to do. And then this movie actually accomplishes what that show is trying to do. And it really gets at something. Trey Edward Schultz is a little younger than us. I think he's 32 so his experience is a little more post 9-11, a little more early 2000. Like we graduated from high school in 2001. I think mm-hmm. he graduated from high school in 2007 or something like that. So a lot of his references, a lot of like his musical references and things, because the movie's kind of set up to be a little bit of a jukebox musical as well. Not that they break into song, but uh, I guess a better way to look at it is it's very American graffiti. You know, like the music and what's on the radio and what's playing becomes its own character. And apparently he he included all of those songs in the script, which is a very dangerous thing to do because you don't know if you're going to get the rights to all that stuff but apparently he did and Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor composed the score for it as well so I just don't want to say too much about it it's a high school movie it's about loss it's about grief it's about death it's about love it's just a really really thoughtful and engrossing film made by a very young and surprisingly confident filmmaker who I think we're going to hear a lot from in the coming years. Yeah, I still haven't seen it. I was put off the scent by the backlash and it seemed a little too schmaltzy or whatever. That's sort of what the backlash, uh, you know, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll do it. It's heavy. It's very, very heavy, but it's also kind of life affirming and transcendent by the end. Okay. So would you say it's similar to Manchester by the Sea is it sadness porn or no 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 it's much more it's it's much more flashy it's much okay. bigger it's much more in your face it's much more kind of psychedelic and crazy and visual it's it's not it's not that sort of like stodgy staid stuff that Manchester by the Sea does I don't really see myself ever watching Manchester by the Sea again but I'll definitely be revisiting waves many times I'm sure All right my number 6 is a movie called Apollo 11 my favorite documentary I've seen this year one of the few I've seen this year but nothing quite like the experience of seeing this in the IMAX with that sound. If you haven't seen it, this movie has no talking heads. It's completely chronological from before uh, the mission starts to count down to the launch and, and coming back down. It's a bunch of found footage that NASA had. It's just quite the experience. It, it's really sort of life-affirming and ecstatic just seeing what they were able to pull off at that 
in that day and age. A lot of the space footage, the just the spaceship footage, it, it, just astounding. And I'm I, I still haven't watched it at home yet. I'm kind of worried to watch it on my TV after seeing the IMAX. But if it ever comes back to IMAX, and I think they'll do select viewings everywhere. Uh, definitely check this out. Um, otherwise, I think it's on Amazon Prime right now. So it, it it's it's astounding if you're into the space program, if you're into NASA, uh, definitely, definitely watch it. I saw it. I loved it. saw it with my dad, actually, at the IMAX. Yeah, it would make for a really good double feature with First Man, right? I mean, it's the yeah. it's the flip side of First Man, I guess. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the, the end of First Man. Yeah, exactly. But I, I agree. I don't think I ever want to watch it anywhere outside of an IMAX theater. And that's 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 not taking away from the accomplishment of the filmmakers here. I just don't think I want to try that. It's just not going to have the same impact. I've talked to people who have only seen it at home and they still have loved it. Okay. Um, if you saw it on IMAX, you're definitely spoiled. My number six is the last film I saw before making this list. And <laughs> um, I am so glad that I did. I was this close to just putting it on my list of shame and, and getting on with it. And at the last minute, I, I found I found a window, and I got to the Alamo Draft House uh, day before yesterday. And I'm so glad that I did because I just glowed through the entire film, and I was just like, "Yes, I love this so much. This is making it on my list. I'm so happy that I made the effort." And I wish more people would. And I know for a lot of people, it seems like homework, but it's Little Women, and it's so fantastic. Punt. <laughs> that makes me really happy. <laughs> All right, your number five. My number five is a movie called Marriage Story. I don't know if you liked it or made your list, but I guess it sounds like not. I don't know. You Both you and I are children of divorce, and uh, you know I was in high school when my parents got divorced, and I sort of saw this process play out. A lot's been made about the acting, and the acting in this movie is incredible. Driver and Scarlett Johansson are terrific, but I'm really impressed by Noah Baumbach in the way he treated both of these characters. The sort of fairness, there's no tipping of the scales. The scales stay even throughout the film about how, like, you're not supposed to be on anyone's side. It's about the process and how the strain it puts on normally decent people and sort of how fucked the system is. Even the divorce lawyers who you're supposed to, in a more cliched movie you would hate, you kind of respect and understand where everyone is coming from in this movie. And so it's... it's it's good people against the process, really. It's it's funny. It's touching. Um, it's not a slog. It's really delightful at times. And, man, great years for Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. Agreed. I, I love this movie as well. I've seen it three times now. I saw it once in the theater, uh, once by myself on Netflix, and once with my parents on Netflix over Christmas break. I just like it more every single time I see it. It just barely missed this list uh, because it's... Been, been a fucking great competitive year but yeah i get it i completely get it i understand why everybody loves it so much and while it's not my favorite noah bombach film i do understand why it's quickly become his most successful most popular most accessible matt it's it's you know it's our, our favorite keyword uh degree of difficulty here was extremely high to sort of thread the needle with this movie and I think he did it wild success and you know by the end of the movie you're sort of beaming with with glee at how, how they sort of stuck the landing and and how these good people sort of made it through the process you know not unscathed but they they got to the other side yeah the one-two punch of the um Stephen Sondheim song and then the um the reading of the letter at the end I think Star Wars may have deprived Adam Driver of his Oscar <laughs> <laughs> like, I think for a second there, he had a chance of getting past Joaquin Phoenix. Now I'd say it's a long shot at best. If Star Wars had been great, I'd be like, all right, Driver's got this thing sewn up. He's going to win himself an Oscar in February. Because of what happened with Star Wars, 
and it sounds weird. It seems weird to say it this way, but because people dislike Star Wars so much, I think it's over for him. And I think unless Joaquin does something really stupid in the next month. (laughs) And he might. (laughs) And he might. Yeah, he has every capacity to put his foot in his mouth many times over. But between Driver like walking out of that Terry Gross interview and um, Star Wars kind of like laying an egg critically, I think it's unfortunately over for Driver, which is too bad because he's he's a revelation in this film. And even I've seen the film three times on Netflix now. I've probably watched the Being Alive musical number <laughs> probably eight times at least by this point because it's awesome. just it's an amazing moment. It's it's one of the indelible cinematic moments of 2019. Yeah. Now go watch the report. I will. I got to be a driver completist. My number five is Ad Astra. Yeah, I watched it again over the holidays. I watched it with my mom. It's I just find it to be a very optimistic film. I, I find the idea of like coming to grips with the fact that we're alone in the universe, getting comfortable with that, and then moving on. I find that to just be an incredibly optimistic notion. To me, this is a film about the transcendent possibilities of atheism. Like I think mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like once you realize <laughs> that there's nothing else well, out there, you can get on with it, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. The the indelible line of 2019 for me, the one that I I fucking typed it in my I was one of those assholes. I took my phone out in the movie, which wasn't a big deal because I was one of three people in the theater. This movie was a flop. I took my phone out and I typed it into my notes during the film because I didn't want to lose it. And that's during Brad Pitt's final uh, voiceover monologue. I am focused on the essential to the exclusion of all else. And that's just something I've just taken with me and it's become my mantra for the last couple of months. And when things get really dire and when things seem overwhelming and when I feel like I'm underwater... Uh, you know, emotionally, financially, psychologically, I just I just close my eyes and I just hear Brad Pitt's voice in my head and I just recite, I am, I am focused on the essential to the exclusion of all else. And that just means so much to me. And that's, to me, really the mission statement of the film in a lot of ways. And yeah, he's, he's going to win his Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and that's fine and he deserves it. But this is the great Brad Pitt performance of 2019, probably one of the three great performances of his career. I agree. I So this barely missed my top 10, and I love this movie. Uh, upon rewatch, I was just still a little bit bothered by the overuse of the voiceover. Like, I, I couldn't get over some parts, and I it's just a little on the nose sometimes with the voiceover and the dad stuff. I wish they had pared that down about 40-50%, but besides that, it's it's a medium nitpick. Besides that, I love everything else about this movie. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino brought this up on the Rewatchables podcast recently where he was on to talk about Dunkirk, and uh, he said he really liked the movie, but he couldn't get past the fact that it was Apocalypse Now. And that it was just sort of like Apocalypse Now light. I get that. If that's if that's not your thing or if that's too much for you or if that's sacrilegious to basically remake Apocalypse Now and basically have a lesser voiceover, then I, I get it. And I'm not defending the idea of remaking Apocalypse or, you know, remaking A Heart of Darkness or whatever. It just doesn't bother me. And I just found it to all be very effective. And I all the daddy issue stuff really worked for me. It worked. I just think it was a little... They didn't need to explain it via voiceover so much. Okay. That's, that's my only thing. Yeah. I'll buy that. All right. All right. What I'm, is it? Uh, it's your, my, it's my, your number four. Number four. Okay. Uh, Little Women. Okay. Let's talk. So this was one of the movies I saw most recently as well. I just saw it a couple days ago in the theater by myself. When I wasn't beaming with you know glee and joy, I was silently weeping a little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, there are multiple scenes of that. Like Florence Pugh is out of control good in this movie. It's the year in, of Pugh, man. a cast full of heavy hitters, man. Uh, yeah, Stiersha is, is always great. The way Greta Gerwig structured this movie makes it 
way more, I think, accessible than it otherwise would have been. And I think it works perfectly. I, I've seen some people complain about kind of maybe the herky-jerkiness of the of the editing going back and forth in chron- you know, chronology, but I think it works uh, splendidly. The Chris Cooper stuff got me so bad. Yeah, speaking speaking of decency, right? I, I wasn't crazy excited about this movie. I love Greta Gerwig, love Lady Bird. It, it was it was gonna be hard to get excited about a third remake of of this material, but she obviously knew what she was doing and wanted to make this and was super passionate about it. And uh, I, I think it's an absolute classic. You know, it just speaks to how good this year was. That it's number four on my list. Yeah, I, I, this may be sacrilegious. I think it's superior to Lady Bird. Like, I think it's just more, I think it's just deeper and more sophisticated in every way. And I actually, I agree with you that I totally responded to all of the sort of temporal shifting stuff. I know for a lot of little women purists, uh, or, you know, certain people found it to be a little bit filmic, to be a little much or a little confusing. I personally was never confused by it. And I found it to be pretty darn effective. And I loved the framing device, the meta framing device of, the stuff with Tracy Letts and the the thing that he insists upon for the climax of her book, which I presume is not in the book. I presume that's just Greta Gerwig's sort of commentary on yep. Louise, Louise May Alcott's life and career, right? <laughs> yeah. And and to me, it was just perfect. It was just a perfect way to land the thing. I thought it was such a smart commentary on this and on these kinds of characters and on these kinds of films, honestly. And uh, it managed to be timely without ever feeling finger wagging or polemic right yeah it's not it's not overly meta it's not uh yeah it doesn't it's not proselytizing it's 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 it, it works even though it feels modern it feels like she's saying something it's still not cloying or anything. it's yeah it, it's so well done and yeah i wasn't expecting any of the meta commentary that was in it but it fucking it works it works great and it's the cast of the year you know the aforementioned searsha timothy chalamet is just damn is he a fucking charm factory um, Emma Watson, Meryl Streep, of course, Laura Dern, Odenkirk. How about when Odenkirk shows up? I was just like, yes, this is exactly what we need right now. We need an injection of Odenkirk. Some people have found it to be a little distracting when Odenkirk shows up. I just thought it was glorious. No, I wanted to give him a hug. Chris Cooper. How about when Chris Cooper goes and asks Meryl Streep to dance? I just had this wonderful adaptation nerdgasm that happened. <laughs> it was just like, yes, yes, adaptation. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's Florence Pugh who steals this movie whole cloth. She's just, and apparently that character is obnoxious and very, very unlikable in the book. And all the other adaptations of the film have apparently struggled to make her more likable. And it seems like Pugh and um, Greta Gerwig cracked the code here because she is petulant and bratty, but still so human, you know, like when she tells Chalamet, she's like, I'm tired of fucking being, you know, second to Joe and everything. Joe gets everything. And I don't want to be, you know, your second choice just because you can't have Joe. And uh, she just absolutely sells it so hard. And she makes a meal out of that character. And I've never read the book. I was somewhat familiar with the story. But I got to say, you know, I went into this with my arms kind of folded and an hour in, I had turned into a 13-year-old girl and I was just like, Joe and Laurie should be together. I can't believe they killed Ben. Like, I was just like, I was just into all of it. She just made it fly and I was just, I was completely dialed in. I absolutely loved it. Go see this movie. It's not doing as well as it 
as it should. It better get some fucking love tomorrow morning at the Oscars. Yes. Let's let, let's hope. Let's let's hope that kickstarts a, a, a little box office mini renaissance for the movie. That's pretty cute that you have uh, both Bombach and Gerwig next to each other on your list. I personally agree with you that I think Little Women is actually superior to Marriage Story. If there is a competition between the two of them, uh, I think Gerwig wins 2019 personally. Cool. I'm with you. My number four is Uncut Gems. Not really a safty guy. Like I've seen a handful of their films. I've seen a couple of their films before this. Uh, there was a lot about Good Time that I liked. Ultimately, I, I thought the ending of that film was a little bit of a betrayal. And I felt yeah. um, a little betrayed by it. And as a result... That, coupled with the fact that I am on record as not being a Sandler guy, I feel that as much as I appreciate Punch Drunk Love, it's it's the PT stuff that I love, not necessarily Sandler. I think Funny People is very overrated. Sandler's just not important to me. Like, his comedies were never important to me. I, Billy Madison, Happy Happy Gilmore, Happy just Gilmore. like, the, yeah, the <laughs> Happy Madison. All right. um, you, you know, the, the Wedding Singer, the Waterboy... These just weren't important comedies for me and to have watched him, you know, kind of sell out to Netflix and just continue to make worse and worse and worse comedies over the course of the last decade has just reinforced for me that I made the right choice by never getting on the Sandler train. I got to say, even though this is only one movie, I, I completely get why people are so excited about this performance and about this character and about his collaboration with the Safties because this movie is fucking this movie is just you know injection of adrenaline right to the heart and he's he's absolutely crucial to that i get it so i just i don't really know what to do with this movie like the parts <laughs> of it i fucking adore parts of it i'm sort of off put by uh-huh. and other like good time i really liked talking to a friend last night about this and we both sort of agreed like 25 minutes in I, i'm like this movie's gonna be one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. And then it sort of peters off into nothing almost. Yeah, uh, it becomes preachy. The- it, to me, that movie becomes preachy by the end, and that sort of felt like a betrayal of what that movie had sort of set us up for. At the beginning of Uncut Gems, I was like, fuck yeah, this is the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and then sort of does the same thing okay. where it kind of peters off, it gets a little aimless, I think, until coming back for, you know, exciting, depressing, whatever finale. I, I guess my issue, and this is still on my top 10 list. So this is a small issue. The Safties sort of style and aesthetic and what makes them the Safties, right? The sort of overlapping dialogue, the kinetic energy, the sound editing. It doesn't preclude them from having a more tightly well-plotted movie. Does that make sense? Sure. Like there's, there's nothing about that that makes it like this movie has to be aimless because of the way they make movies. I just, I just want a little more from their story and plots sometimes and uh, this movie was no exception plus i i don't know what to do this movie because it got a little overhyped by a lot of people in my life including you so sure i respect it i i need to marinate on it this is definitely a kind of movie where i think you have to be in the right mood and frame of mind to see it and be open to it like if, if you're if you have anxiety in your life when you see it right then you're you're going to uh it's gonna probably spiral spiral you a little bit i gotta say it kind of cured me of some of my anxiety i, I think it was oh, so anxious like i think i was anxious going into it and the movie is so anxious that it it was kind of like two wrongs make a right or something it was like you know getting a when you're getting injected with a flu shot, they include a little bit of influenza in there to fight it or something. So yeah, um, yeah. in that regard, I found it to be sort of a little bit of a cure-all for the uh, for the emotional state I was in at the time. Yeah, I, I get you. It's maybe not as tight as it could be. It's probably about 10 minutes longer than it should be. I was just a fucking along for the ride. Like, I just was enjoying riding on the back of the Safties, and I just felt very taken care of the entire time and just drawn <laughs> along and I just was liking all the choices they were making and I thought the soundtrack was phenomenal. I think that the the uh, Opal is just the most wonderful MacGuffin. Like what a 
beautiful thing to wrap your narrative around. And um, and the fact that the movie opens, I've gone on record as saying that I love films that open in exotic places that aren't set in those exotic places. And the fact that the movie <laughs> yeah, yeah. opens with this crazy drone shot of Ethiopia, and then it goes into the stone and then comes out of his colon. Like, it was just, it was all very winking, but it was just all landing for me. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I, if I gushed or beamed or laughed as heartily at the pure audacity of a scene more so than I did than the this is how I win conversation between Sandler and and Kevin Garnett. Like once (laughs) once it crystallized for me where that scene was going, where his head was at, like watching the wheel spin and realizing what he's about to do. I was just like, I'm in. I'm fucking and watching Kevin. There's just the look on Kevin Garnett's face and the smile that creeps across his face. Like, is this guy fucking for Is this guy serious right now? And the take and the money and passing it to Julia Fox through the window is like, okay, you did it. This is great. I'm 100% in. Like, this is exactly what I want from the third act of this film. Uh, yeah. And I just fucking fun. rode that rode that roller coaster all the way into a into a wall at the end, you know, and I was just so <laughs> yeah. happy to be there. I, I'm still I still haven't got myself to get up for a second viewing and I yeah, I'm really curious to see how it feels upon repeat. Have you seen it more than once, Matt? I saw it twice in the theater, yeah. Okay. The second time w- w- yeah, the second time was still good. Yeah, I loved I absolutely loved it both times. I mean the first it's hard to argue with the first time just because it's so it's all so new and exciting and crazy. But um, the, the second time I really got to kind of um, investigate it a little more deeply and mostly was just blown away by how great Kevin Garnett is in this, right? I mean, all, <laughs> the entire ensemble, Bogosian, Lakeith Stanfield. I'm so impressed with Lakeith Stanfield's ability to you know, carry a movie like um, Sorry to Bother You or to take a backseat and you know, play second to Sandler or Daniel Craig this year, but still always make an impression. Like He's so fucking good in this movie. He's got range, too. Like, the... Think about Knives Out and Uncut Gems. Those, yes, two characters. those characters could not be great. further apart. <laughs> yeah. Eric Bogosian and Judd Hurst, just like those two guys, this is exactly what those two guys should be doing at this point in their career. I was so proud of both of them. The aforementioned Mike, Julia Mike Fox. Mike Francesca. Mike Francesca. Yeah. Tell me about him. I, I'm not familiar. Is, is he a, he's a sportscaster? He's a, he's a radio personality? He's a long time sort of blowhard classic New York radio host for gotcha. the last like 30 years. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, he's got the most Mike, amazing Mike team. and the Mad Dog. Gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Okay, it's just great. I just love it. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm super glad it exists. I'll say that. My number three is a movie that I, I think is on your list. We'll see. Um, Harmony Corinne's The Beach Bum. It is not on my list, I'm oh. sorry to say. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of my favorite movies in life ever seen. I, you know, I, I couldn't legitimize it getting getting it higher on my list. I've, I think I've seen it three or four times. I, I'm just in love with the pure cinema and anarchy and insanity of this movie. It's it's even better than Spring Breakers, a movie I was a huge fan of and was on my top ten list a few years Sacrilege. back. Sacrilege. <laughs> McConaughey is is just having the time of his life. I, I, this movie's magic, you know? This movie is pure <laughs> magic with McConaughey and Isla Fisher dancing on the pier, the entire wedding scene. These guys come up, this little pick RS stuff. Like, Martin Lawrence, so much fun for 15 minutes. Zac Efron is so much fun for 15 minutes. Having Jimmy Buffett write a song about Moondog on the boat with Snoop is is unbelievable. I love I love every second of this movie, and I and I wish it was getting a little more press. But people are uh, people look at me like I'm insane when I keep touting this movie. But uh, it just gets me. It's a curiosity that will eventually be discovered 
in like a midnight movie environment or whatever. God, I hope so. It's more it's more than curiosity. Sir. It's <laughs> Sorry, art. It's didn't, art. Didn't mean to Pure use art. use the c word. Yeah, I loved this movie. I, we saw it together. I have not yeah. revisited revisited it since that screening, so I'm obviously overdue for that. Boy, it holds up. Yeah, I really I remember absolutely adoring it, and we went out and had a beer afterwards and had a nice conversation about it, and recorded a podcast about it. See so if anybody wants to revisit that. It was one of those podcasts that we recorded, and immediately afterwards, I was just like, we're gonna have the lowest numbers we've ever had. <laughs> like nobody's gonna <laughs> listen to this podcast because no one's gonna see this movie. But maybe yeah. maybe someday people will discover it. My number three is 1917. Sam Mendes, <sighs> 1917. Yeah, we can get deeper into this when you see it, and uh, I think it's gonna have a very big day tomorrow. So we'll be talking about it a lot for the next month, and um, I could see it going all the way. It's that kind of movie, you know. The Oscars obviously love war movies. They've proven themselves to respect Sam Mendes in the past. It seems like he's paid his dues and sort of come through the looking glass from his early American Beauty days. Mm-hmm. And he proved himself with the super mainstream franchise stuff by making two very successful James Bond movies. And now I think he is finally maybe the filmmaker he was always meant to become. It just took him 20 years to get there. Yeah. And this is his best movie with a bullet, pardon the pun. It is every bit the technical marvel that you've heard it is, but it is so much more than that. I can completely appreciate this movie as a cinematography nerd, but I can also appreciate it as a really, really effective and well-told story. And the fact that the movie can sort of do both of those things simultaneously and be just as successful at both of those things simultaneously, I think is an incredible achievement. And I just sat there and just giggled like a lunatic for the entire thing, which I'm sure the people around (laughs) me must have thought I was nuts or high or something because I'm such a cinematography nerd and I know what it takes, how much it takes to accomplish these kinds of things that I would just be like, how the fuck did they get the camera there? That's so crazy. I mean, this is, I have in my notes here, this is, quote unquote, how the hell did they get the camera there, the movie? (laughs) And in that regard, you know, Mendes is a little bit like Quran and wanting to show you the kinds of things in these long takes that you've never seen before and wants you, I guess, sort of wants you thinking about how they were able to accomplish it. And yet the movie is never too self-conscious about that. Like, it's not actually one shot. I think it's about eight or nine shots stitched together. And the movie never tries to hide where the stitching is happening, right? Like there will be times when they go through a doorway or they pass a tree or they come out of a cave or something and you're just like, okay, the movie's not attempting to try to really sell the idea that it's all one shot, but it does want you to have this real-time experience that's crucial to the kind of emotional reaction it wants you to, the kind of emotional reaction it wants to elicit. And it is so successful. And by the end of it, you really feel like you've gone through something and like you've been on a literal and figurative journey with these guys. And this this uh, George, Mac- I think he pronounces it George Mackay, spelled McKay, but I think he pronounces it Mackay, who I only really knew from Captain Fantastic, which he's very good in as, as Vigo's young, oldest son. He's a fucking movie star. And the movie, and he needs to be because he's basically in every single frame of this movie. And it, oftentimes the camera is really getting up in its business and being very intimate with him. And he, you just can't take your eyes off of him. And honestly, what I was thinking through a lot of this, I was looking at his face and I was thinking about the fact that he's a Brit and I was thinking about the fact that he's like about to turn 28 years old. And I was like, James Bond? I was like, <laughs> could this happen? Like, look how goddamn handsome this guy is. The camera loves him. He's captivating. He's physical. He's about the right age. I was like, is this, is this, should we be talking about Bond here? Anyway, getting ahead of myself. 
Okay. He's phenomenal. The movie's phenomenal. Fucking believe the hype, man. That this is this is a, this is the real thing. I can't wait. I'm seeing it in a couple days, and I can't fucking wait. Uh, we're on to mine number two. Uh, this is a movie I saw pretty late in the game, and I I don't know what kept me away initially. It's got sort of weirdly mixed reviews. I guess it sort of makes sense given the subject matter and how they approach it. But Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit. Oh, interesting. Okay. I fell for this movie hard. I loved the take. Roman Griffin Davis is as good as, you know, the Golden Globe Award nomination leads it to believe. I You know, this movie's laugh out loud funny, but also takes the things that needs to take seriously, seriously. Most World War II movies start with the sort of conceit that Nazis are bad and evil and we just go from there. This is one of the first movies that really gets into, like, the nuts and bolts of how kids are indoctrinated and just how easily traits and ideas and thoughts and nationalism is passed down into children, how how that's just like, a, it, there's no agency from these kids unless an outside force comes in and tells them uh, that they're wrong. And it's, it's another point in favor of the idea that uh, what you're scared of, what you're anti, the people you hate, you will stop hating once you're actually around them. This movie just did it for me on a, a number of levels and it's the style that Taika brings is uh, arresting and I laughed out loud and almost cried and Scarlett Johansson has another incredible performance here so everyone go see Jojo Rabbit I I understand people not being huge fans of the of the tonal shifts that didn't bother me at all uh, I, I love Taika I can't can't wait to see what the next 15 years of his career does. And I can't wait for uh, Natalie Portman as Thor. So, <laughs> And apparently Christian Bale, potentially, as yeah. the villain. I'm glad you liked it. You did uh, not like it. I did not like it very much, no. Wow. Actually, you know what? Okay. That's, that's being dramatic. I thought it was fine. I, I thought okay. it was totally fine. I loved Rockwell, and I loved Scarlett Johansson. I, I, the Rock, there's a, something that Rockwell does in the final moments of this film. And again, I'm going to come back to that word, decency. And he makes a character decision at the end of the film, which totally floored me and may have like salvaged the film for me in some ways. Like ultimately, then the movie does something else at the very, very end, which annoyed the hell out of me, which is like, fuck. So I sort of walked out of me like, fuck this movie because of what happens at the very, very end. There's enough things that worked in it for me to at least respect it. Not the least of which is Rockwell. Scarlet's wonderful. There's also a moment with Scarlet's shoes at one point. Which yeah. also floored me. I was just like, whoa, this movie has fucking found a different gear. This movie's kind of leveled up. Like, it can do that too? All right, that's impressive, Taika. I didn't see that coming. Um, but ultimately, it didn't work for me. It wasn't nearly as funny as I think it thinks it is. And um, as a result, I just was, um, yeah, I, I just didn't quite get it the way I know a lot of people have. But a lot of people absolutely love it. And uh, and I'm, I'm happy for all of you. I just think it's a breath of fresh air to not take the deathly serious approach to... The Holocaust, you know, even though that sounds kind of terrible to say, but like it almost feels more realistic with the levity brought in, and especially like when it's about the kids becoming Nazis. Like it just, it it just felt more real than like the binary is Nazi is not Nazi sort of uh, trope of of most World War Two movies. But enough about that. What's your number two, Matt? My number two is your number one, and that would be okay. Parasite. So, uh, since, so I'm, since I'm going to have the final word <laughs> on uh, number one here, I guess, let's hear about Parasite. Because I know this is a movie that we also both put on our top tens of the 2010s. And so there was no way this wasn't going to end up very, very high on both of these lists. And up until about a week ago, it was my number one. I've seen it 
twice now. It's just an absolute miracle of a movie. I'm currently writing, you know, blurb about it for my um, my yearly top ten article, and just writing about it makes me want to watch it again. <laughs> this movie is just such a revelation. Yeah. I've seen it three times. I think it's perfect on every level. It's it's what I want from a movie. It was nothing like seeing. I'm so jealous of people who haven't seen this yet and get to see it for the first time, just because it is so smart and it's so trenchant, but it's also so exciting and so unexpected and you don't really know where it's going and it's just it sort of floors you the first like the first couple reveals are just astounding it's a heist movie it's a movie about class warfare it's it gets into like almost tarantino violent spots uh it's also funny as hell it's it's just everything i want out of a movie you know it's uh, bong june man what a stud and i hope i hope this uh somehow breaks through and wins Best Picture as the first foreign film to do so. It would be incredible. I think it's got a chance. I, I could see a path for it. Um, it's one of the most it's not just one of the most universally I mean it is the most universally beloved film of 2019 and it's one of the most universally beloved films of the 21st century. I mean nobody yeah. doesn't like this movie and it's going to make history tomorrow by becoming the first South Korean film ever nominated for Best Picture and a month from now it could become the first international film to win Best Picture. Now we might be getting ahead of ourselves we might be getting a little too optimistic. The Oscars have obviously proven themselves capable of breaking our hearts and doing stupid things year after year after year. So let's try and be a little bit more realistic. But it could happen, and it it couldn't happen to a more deserving film. I mean, this this movie is a masterpiece with a capital M. It's an easy movie to recommend. It's practically impossible to describe. Like you said, it's a heist film. It's a Hitchcock thriller. It's a horror movie. It speaks to our times without ever being preachy about it. it you know, it's not a short movie. It's a good it's a healthy two and a half hours long and yet it just absolutely flies by i just can't wait to watch it again and yeah this will be one of those great movies that if it's if it slips through the cracks for people it'll be one of those fun films to get to introduce to people and then just watch oh watch them as they watch it right <laughs> yeah, particularly so, okay. the second act so you have a movie at number one that you didn't have in your top 10 of the decade you mm-hmm. just saw so I just saw it I don't know, did you finally see Hobbs and Shaw? Like, what happened? <laughs> All right, so you're going to cry recency bias on this, but I promise it's not that. This just comes, I mean, honestly, these movies are tied for number one. I just had to pick one, and it just came down to my personal preferences, and it just comes down to the types of films that I respond to, and it just comes down to the fact that I'm a Francophile when it comes to the cinema. Every now and then, the French come along, and they're like, hold my wine, and they just fucking, you know drop a stone cold masterpiece and they're like just don't forget we invented this shit all right like (laughs) this is our goddamn art form we invented this we're here to remind you that we do this better than anybody with all due respect to the south koreans and so celine siama's portrait of a lady on fire is just about as good as it gets for me like i i mean i just watched it and i was just like this film is fucking made for me it's made for my sensibilities i'm just responding to all of this it's this like torrid bodice ripping lesbian romance set in 18th century Brittany, which sounds like homework, you know, it it sounds so stiff and stodgy on paper, but it's the exact opposite of that. It's beautiful and sexy and exciting and so much to say, not just about femininity, but about art and about, you know, subjecting oneself to the titular portrait as a way of like, you know, having part of yourself stolen or maybe having part of yourself immortalized and, you know, about a love that can never be, which will last forever because it's unrequited. It's just, it's all beautiful 
torrid, aching cinematic stuff. And I just, I watched it and I was like, this movie is simultaneously timely and timeless. And uh, I loved it so much that I did that thing where I watched it and then the next night I watched it again because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So <laughs> I've seen it three times now. It's, it's just wonderful. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. And honestly, it was this and Parasite at Cannes last year, which were the two most critically acclaimed. Celine Siam, I believe, won the Screenplay Award, and I think she also won like some sort of special Grand Prix Director Award or something. So this this movie obviously has has its share of endorsements. It's just not quite as I think sort of universally beloved and and accessible as something like Parasite. Perhaps Parasite has the benefit of being a genre movie and of being a thriller, whereas this is going to be. It's a little more quiet. It's a little more staid. It's a little more low key but still has just moments of like transcendent beauty and just like revelatory aching <laughs> emotion in it. Uh, yeah, it's on my list of shame. I still haven't gotten to it. It's coming out in theaters here in a few weeks, I believe. So I'll be able to see it on the big screen. It has my favorite musical moment of 2019. It also has my favorite final shot of 2019. And I am very susceptible to being floored by a final shot, right? Yeah. <laughs> so in that regard, it, 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 it the final shot is just a showcase for one of the two lead actresses, and you just kind of get to watch everything on this person's face. It's 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 incredible. It's very very cinematic. It's a beautiful thing. Under consideration, just barely missed the list for me. I'll just rattle off a few movies, Matt. Do it. I have uh, Amazing Grace, the Aretha Franklin documentary. I guess technically 2018, but it wasn't really available until 2019. Young Book Smart is a movie I really adore. I uh, couldn't quite fit it on. Uh, the Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I think we briefly talked about. Ad Astra, The Irishman, which didn't make either of our lists. I love the first two hours and 45 minutes of The Irishman. Hmm. The last hour, it's hard for me to get around, even though I understand what Scorsese is doing, I understand what it's about. It's just, it, you know. It's a it's different a, movie. It's a different movie, and it just grinds to a goddamn halt. Loses all momentum. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which really surprised me, actually. And then a, a movie called Ready or Not. <laughs> Have yeah, you seen that? I saw, yeah, I saw it in the theater. I really adored that movie. I wasn't, I was expecting nothing, and uh, I love a good stuck landing. That end of that movie makes me so goddamn happy. So if you haven't seen Ready or Not, give it a look. Uh, would make for yeah, a fun, I, would make for a fun double feature with Knives Out, actually. The Souvenir, which I, I really liked, but just a little unexciting for me. What, what do you got? Honorable mentions uh alphabetically uh, avengers endgame up until a couple days ago i honestly had it. it i think it was sitting at like number nine or something and it just got kind of bumped but as far as populist filmmaking goes it just doesn't get much better than this for me as somebody who kind of came to the marvel thing was dragged kicking and screaming into this thing by the end i was i was a total convert i was uh, i was totally drinking the kool-aid by the end and i think i may have even liked avengers endgame more than you or Anders or Ryan Julio. Like I seem to remember our conversation being like, I think I like this more than ever. I think it's the best Marvel movie. Interesting. I, okay. I've seen it probably. F I think I saw it four times in the theater. I think I've watched it another two times since on Disney Plus. It's just great. It's just everything I want from this type of film. It's a blast. It's it an is. absolute blast. Yeah. Uh, the farewell, fantastic. Believe the hype if you haven't seen it. It is as good as you've heard. It again just barely missed my list. Uh, I lost my body, which is a Netflix film, uh, animated uh, French animated film, which I just saw a couple days ago which um, I was trying really hard to find a place for it on the list because I wanted to get something animated on there. It's just great and weird and surreal and bizarre and violent. And uh, it's just it's just unlike anything I've ever seen before. Yeah, The Irishman I've seen twice now, once in the theater, once on Netflix. I think I liked it more the second time around. I get I also get what Scorsese's going for. I get it. I get The Irishman. Yeah. I can wrap my does, brain around The Irishman. Does but, it make it exciting? Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. And it's really impressive what he's doing, and it's very admirable what he's doing. Doesn't necessarily make it a super exciting watch. I don't have a problem with the length. I think the length is justified. Yeah, it's just not something I could see myself revisiting very often. Uh, Knives Out is great. I loved it. It's fun. Just barely missed my list. Last, Planet, Last Black Man in San Francisco, maybe the first great film I saw this year. Like, I think it came out back in June, and that was like, oh, that's the first movie I've seen this year besides Avengers. Where I'm like, that has a really good chance of making my list in January. Uh, the Lighthouse, which you said you saw yesterday, right? Yeah, I, I, I liked it. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. It's I weird. Didn't, I didn't love it. I don't, I don't. Yeah, it's another movie. I'm not really sure what to do with. I, I knew it wasn't list worthy. I think that uh, I haven't talked to him about it yet because I haven't seen him in a couple of weeks. But uh, that's a. I think there's a pretty good chance that might be Ryan Julio's favorite film of 2019. <laughs> we walked out of it, and I could tell he was really changed by that movie. Marriage Story is great. Everybody agrees it's great. Pain and Glory, the Almodovar film, which I thought was just delightful and heartwarming. And in a um, in a different year, I think Antonio Banderas would have a good chance of winning his Oscar for it. Unfortunately, this is just an uncommonly competitive year for that sort of thing. But it's great. It's, it's Almodovar's best film in years. And then The Two Popes, which I finally saw about a week ago, which <laughs> I sort of felt like homework, but it's goddamn delightful. I could just watch those two eat pizza and chat for, you know, another two hours. I, I just thought it was great. It's the performance of Jonathan Price's career. I was surprised how deeply it goes into uh, the current Pope's backstory and history. And I thought it was just going to be the two of them sitting around eating pizza, talking for two hours. And a lot of it is that, but it's also, uh, there's a complete other narrative about, I'm not, I can't remember the current Pope's name, but that Pope who Jonathan Price plays, who's our current Pope, um, had this entire adventure in history and political career uh, years, decades before becoming the Pope. And uh, the movie digs deeply into that. And you watch it and you're just like, oh yeah, this is the fucking guy who directed City of God. Of course. Yes, that's yeah. right. This, this guy is like <laughs> South American cinematic royalty. Yes, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% in. So I really enjoyed it. It's on my list. I need to watch it. It's on Netflix, so it's easy. Okay, really quickly before we... Uh, uh, close the book on this podcast and on 2019. Uh, do you want to just dance through top 10 most anticipated films of 2020? Yeah, this was kind of done slapdash. I wish I had done a little more research. As of now, here are 10 in sort of general order. You know, this next Marvel phase is going to be really weird, which excites me. And one of the movies I'm very excited about is The Eternals. I, I like when they go to space. And so Angelina Jolie, Kumail, it's going to be fucking odd. And I, I'm excited. You just like swole Kumail. Yeah, dude, I love fucking... <laughs> <laughs> Jack Swole mail. Number nine, uh, a movie called On the Rocks. Sofia Coppola's next movie. She's reuniting with Bill Murray. Bill oh. Murray, Rashida Jones. Um, oh, that was not on my radar. That is exciting, and uh, hopefully we'll see that. Uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven. Aaron Sorkin's next movie. Very stoked for that. Um, and I just want to say, this list is not necessarily what I think are going to be the best movies, but what I'm sort of most curious about, right? Yeah, and I think um, these lists are unfortunately going to be a little slanted towards the American stuff, just yeah. because that's the stuff that we sort of can see on the slate. I I am very curious about the new Ghostbusters movie. Big Ghostbusters guy, we all know that the last movie was a big old bust. I, this could be a disaster. This could be a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Jason Reitman has not had a great track record the last couple of years. Uh, hit and miss, let's say. I'm definitely, I'll be there with Paul Rudd. Tenet, I'm, you know, maybe this is number one on your list. Uh, <laughs> let's see what a $200 million weird inception, but with time thing is. Yeah, I don't know. This is going to be fun. Be still my heart. Justin Lin is back doing Fast 9 mm -hmm. this year. So mm -hmm. that will be something. And then No Time to Die. Pretty stoked to see what Carrie uh, Fukunaga, Fukunaga, 
uh, does with the Bond franchise, uh, Daniel Craig's Last Ride. Then be remiss without uh, mentioning Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill and Ted 3. Couldn't be more excited. Uh, a Keanu movie. More excited about that than I was about John Wick 3. And then number one with a fucking bullet is Dune. I don't need to say anything more about that. I, I don't know if I've ever been more excited for a movie than I am for <laughs> Dune. He's, he's your guy. All right, well, I have a lot of overlap, but I'll just jam through it real quick. Number 10 would be Black Widow, which is the first Marvel movie I think I've ever been like legitimately really excited about you know like i was i've been curious about a lot of things but i've wanted a black widow movie for so long i think scarlet has more than you know earned the right to have her own standalone thing and you know i'm super high in florence Pugh at the moment of course and i think it's just a it's just a fucking rocking trailer i just it's just a great great trailer i'm really excited i think we get it in february right maybe yeah, march. We get it. yeah february march it's really it's coming up number nine is the french dispatch of course uh every wes anderson movie is an event uh number eight is fast and furious nine yeah. i'm so excited to have justin lynn back as far as yeah. i'm concerned this series has been on a downward spiral since we lost justin lynn i could not disagree more with people who say that the seventh one is the best one that is absolute they're they're completely basic well it's all emotional right it's all about paul walker and and that incredible epilogue and stuff give me a fucking break james wan is a hack compared to justin long uh, justin long justin lynn he you know his four are still the best three four five six yeah his four are still the best four in the series as far as i'm concerned and yes i'm including tokyo drift in that um (laughs) number seven is top gun maverick which is just not a film i thought i cared about or wanted until i saw the first trailer and then uh i'm i'm converted i'm in i'm like nostalgia juices flowing yeah and just it just got me thinking about tony scott and how much i love tony scott again the aforementioned rewatchables podcast has had tarantino on this week they talked about dunkirk but then they also talked about unstoppable the other day and that's just one of the great action films of the 21st century it's always so um exciting to hear you know filmmakers you respect gush about movies that you thought you were the only one who cared about right (laughs) and so just think hearing him gush about tony scott who of course directed True Romance in a lot of ways Tony Scott jump-started Tarantino's career just to think about Tony Scott and to think about you know Cruz and Christopher McQuarrie Kaczynski Joseph Kaczynski potentially making a love letter to Tony Scott I'm just really excited about it. I'm going to fucking be there opening night. Number six is Dune of course. I'm not a Dune head. I'm not I have very little experience with the book. I've seen the Lynch movie but that's about it. It's just not Read something. the book. Read the book. Do yeah, it. I probably should. I probably should. It comes around in November, I want to say. No, it comes December. Like December. December 20th. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm of course in because I'm a Villeneuve completist. Um, number five is West Side Story. Steven Spielberg is making a uh, musical finally, and he decided to remake the best musical of all time. So <laughs> I'm simultaneously... Um, ecstatic slash terrified. We'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Number four is a cheat for me. I apologize. It's a it's a threefer. It's Deep Water, Stillwater, and The Last Duel. Now, <laughs> Ben Affleck is making a movie called Deep Water with Adrian Lin. Matt Damon is making a movie called Stillwater with Tom McCarthy. So that's just adorable in and of itself. And then yeah. they're both making a movie with Ridley Scott called The Last Duel. Yeah. So this will be the first film they've been in together since Jay and Silent Bob Strike back i want to say uh sounds right yeah (laughs) to me that's a big deal i think this is going to be an exciting year for affleck um he has at least four movies coming out this year not saying any of them are going to be great but it's clear that he's 
taking a stand and trying something, trying to like get some traction going. Um, number three is no time to die. Uh, again, something I'm really excited about slash terrified about. Um, this could be a depressing and disappointing swan song for Mr. Craig. I have a lot of faith in Carrie Fukunaga, and yet this movie has been plagued by problems since the beginning. Uh, the trailer's great. You know, we know Ana de Armas is in there. and Don't forget about uh, Phoebe uh, Waller-Bridge. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Scott Z. Burns. I mean, this could go either way. I, this is really a 50-50 proposition for me. But um, yeah, of course I'll be there opening night. Um, number two is The Trial of Chicago 7. I just think that, that the marriage of that subject matter and Sorkin in an election year... It just could not be more perfect. I'm so goddamn excited. And then, yeah, of course, you know what number one is. I just, uh, yeah, I just, I just rewatched, I just rewatched the trailer again before we started this thing, and um, yeah, just turned into a giddy little schoolboy. It just fucking looks like a sequel to Inception, and it, as the kids say, I am here for it. It's gonna be a fun year. Yeah, this is gonna be a great year. 2020. Can't believe uh, we've made it this far. Let's have a good one, Matt. Until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Happy New Year, pal. Talk to you soon. <laughs>